Hey, good morning, Life Point. So glad to be with you this morning. Uh, I'm here at Life Point today recording this, and uh, there's work going on in the rest of the building, especially up on the roof. So you may hear some of that noise uh, as we go forward here this morning. On that note, hey, volunteers are greatly needed uh, on Saturdays and, uh, and even on work day, uh, weekdays. Your skills, your ability, your time is needed here in the building. And uh, if we want to open soon if we can. And so um, there's just a myriad of little tiny things that need to get done. And so... Um, please contact Evan at lpcoe.com and let him know that you're available and uh, he'll match your skills to the work that needs to get done. With that in mind, we are planning for in-person gatherings to resume as soon as possible. And uh, we're working on a plan for that right now. And we just uh, covet your prayers for us as we uh, think that through and try to comply with what the governor has asked us to do and uh, and then to uh, kind of customize that in a sense to uh, to our own setting and so uh, your prayers, even your input uh, is gladly accepted. Uh, one more thing before we get into the message today, and that is that Pastor Steve and his team are planning a um, virtual kids camp that will be online. It won't be here on campus. It won't be in person. Uh, it will be online. It's called Victory. And uh, watch for the details of that to be coming up very, very soon. In fact, just in the next few days, I imagine we'll have some promotion out. So uh, it's going to be exciting, going to be helpful to you as parents and to your kids. And uh, so watch for that and be sure to register your children. This morning, I'd like you to think with me as we begin about two basic questions. First, what do you do when your service for Christ lands you in prison? What do you do when those who should be your partners in the gospel show themselves instead to be your competitors and use your adverse circumstances as an opportunity to promote themselves. In a word, you rejoice. Let's pray together. Father, I pray this morning that as we get into your word now, as we examine uh, this amazing passage in Paul's uh, beautiful letter to the church at Philippi, that uh, you would just open it to us and uh, that we would understand it, that we would take it to heart. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Help me this morning to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so that you would be glorified and that your church would be strengthened. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Few people in history, if if any, have been lucky or unlucky enough to be around to comment on newspaper reports of their own death. In the spring of 1897, Samuel Longhorn Clemens couldn't decide whether to be 
more amused or annoyed when he read the news that a rumor was spreading through New York City that he was dying in poverty in London. A writer for the New York Journal actually contacted him to inquire whether the rumors that he was gravely ill or already dead were in fact true. He issued a letter of response, a portion of which made it into an article that ran in the journal on June 2nd, 1897. In it, he wrote that, while not perhaps very robust, I am in the best of health. I can understand perfectly how the report of my illness got about. James Ross Clemens, a cousin of mine, was seriously ill two or three weeks ago in London, but is well now. I have even heard on good authority that I was dead. The reports of my demise have been greatly exaggerated. He signed it with his pen name, Mark Twain. You know, Paul's letter to the church in Philippi contains some of that same tenor and tone. The believers in that city concerned for Paul's welfare, knowing that he was under house arrest, that he was personally financing his own imprisonment, had sent a generous financial gift by the hand of a man named Epaphroditus. As we saw last week, this letter we know as Philippians is, first of all, a thank you note. And he wants them to know right out of the gate that any rumors that his current circumstances were resulting in the demise of his ministry or, or even worse, bringing about the end of his life had been greatly exaggerated. Instead, his circumstances were turning out for the furtherance of his ministry and for the advance of the gospel. So let's open our Bibles this morning, or if you have an electronic device, go ahead and turn that on, and and let's read together our text for this morning, which is found in Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Paul writes, I want you to know, brothers that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Now go back with me to verse 12, where Paul says, in effect, I want you to know what's really happening here, where I am. Verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, has really served to advance the gospel. And that word really can also be translated rather. So let's plug that word in and see what this verse sounds like. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has rather served to advance the gospel. Rather than what? 
Well, rather than what they thought or what they imagined, rather than rumors that they may have heard, rather than what they may have been anxious or fearful about. And Paul rightly sensed that the real story would come as a real surprise to some of the believers in Philippi. Rather than any of all their fears and concerns, what had really happened, what had rather happened to Paul, had really served to advance the gospel. Now let's remind ourselves of where Paul was. There's a body of scholarship that maintains that Paul was in fact in Ephesus. Another holds that he was in Caesarea by the sea. The most widely held belief, however, is that he was in Rome. Wherever he was, the fact is that he was incarcerated, but not in a jail cell, so that you can erase that image from your mind. Instead, on this occasion, he was under house arrest in a rented apartment. And oh, by the way, Paul would would have had to pay the rent out of his own pocket. Nice thing about the Romans, they they would incarcerate you, but they wouldn't pay for your room and board. That was on you. What a country. He tells the believers in Philippi that he's in chains, which might imply that, according to Roman practice, he was shackled around the clock to a regular schedule of Praetorian guards. He could freely receive visitors, but he was not personally free to leave, to work, to move about the city. Kind of like COVID-19, but worse. Still, he writes this letter with the, the pervasive, predominating theme of joy. And he uses the word joy, or one of its cognates, no less than ten times in this brief four-chapter letter. It's as if his head, his heart, his hand, and his pen are overtaken with joy. In the face of uncertain circumstances and a foggy future, he's decided to to keep on rejoicing. I've given this some thought, and I can tell you with some measure of confidence that, that if I were in jail and I had the opportunity to write a letter to LifePoint Church that I know would be read on a Sunday morning by Pastor Evan or Pastor Steve or one of the elders. My letter would be brief and to the point. I've thought a lot about this, and I think it would just consist of five words. Get me out of here. And not so with Paul. He's not asking for legal reprieve. He's, he's saying something quite different. He's saying that, that what has happened has rather served to advance the gospel. And in order for us to understand his meaning, we need to understand that word, advance. It literally means to go out in front of someone or a group of someone's and and cut down, chop down, hack down whatever stands in the way of progress. It was used by the Romans when the, the ancient equivalent of the Army Corps of Engineers went ahead of Caesar and his forces, clearing away entire forests if necessary, to ensure that no impediment would stand in the way 
of their advance toward their destination. Now let's apply that image to what Paul is saying here. Paul knew with confidence that God was at work. He was proactively employing his particular circumstances to remove barriers and to drive the gospel forward. It's as if Paul is shouting to his friends in Philippi, look at what God is doing. Neither you nor I would have asked for or anticipated these conditions, but God is at work through them. Can you believe it? So here's the heart of my message to you this morning. You can experience joy in uncertain circumstances when the motivation for that joy is not rooted in those circumstances. Or let me see if I can put it another way. You can have genuine joy in some difficult locations when your joy is not dependent on your location, but on the power of God to accomplish in you, through you, or even in spite of you, all that he intends in the location where he has placed you. And I'm not talking now about the power of positive thinking or an Eastern philosophical bliss that requires us to to detach from reality and responsibility. I'm talking about living according to a principled expectation in the faithfulness of the sovereign God to fulfill all of his promises and to accomplish all of his purposes. God doesn't ask us to, to mindlessly deny the reality of adverse circumstances. Instead, he provides us with the capacity for expectant endurance within and through those circumstances. You and I can experience joy in the face of adversity because when we purpose to serve Christ and embrace his agenda for our lives, we find confidence that God will use our circumstances to serve as catalysts and not constraints to the continuance of the gospel and to to all that God wants to accomplish. Let's come back to our text now and ask this question. What evidence did Paul have to, to validate his claim that God was using what had happened to him to actually break down barriers to the gospel? And Paul points to two developments. Look with me again at verses 12 to 14. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So two developments there. Development number one, it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Well, who were the imperial guard? The actual word Paul uses here is praetoria, which is usually translated praetorian guard, which means the palace guard. They they were an elite cohort of select troops originally formed and put in place by Caesar Augustus, whose role it was to to serve as the personal bodyguards to the emperor, to protect his homes, his family, to maintain peace in the capital city. 
At the time Paul wrote to the Philippians, the emperor was Nero, that lunatic who fiddled while Rome burned, who imagined and then perpetrated the most severe and horrifying forms of persecution against Christians. So hear what Paul is saying. The entire imperial guard now knows that my imprisonment is for Christ. Because Paul was shackled to this this guard and that guard and another guard and then another around the clock so that those soldiers became his captive audience. He was able to share the message of the gospel over and over and over again with them and to converse with them about it throughout his imprisonment. How many of those guards might have believed in Jesus. And notice that phrase in verse 13, and and all the rest. Who were all the rest? Well, we don't know. But if Paul's situation gave him such regular audiences for the gospel, here's what we can assume. We, We can assume that the gospel was making inroads into the halls of the palace, into the highest levels of government, even into the the household, the family of Caesar Nero himself. And notice how Paul ends this letter in chapter 4, verse 22. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. We saw two weeks ago that a saint is a person who has believed in Jesus Christ, who has accepted uh, who, whom God has accepted through Christ and adopted into his family, who has been set apart for God's own purposes and who is being conformed to the image of Christ, cleansed from the inside and transformed to the outside. Now, guess what? There were people like that now in Caesar's household. There were saints in Caesar's household, because God used Paul's imprisonment for the advance of the gospel. The same can be true of you. God will use your setbacks, your your imprisoning, confining circumstances, those things that seem to tie you down as the means to move the gospel forward in the lives of people around you. And although Paul was in chains, the gospel was clearly not nor is it today. And and as you trust God in what seems to be adverse circumstances and choose to make him known there in that place where you are, he will use your circumstances as catalysts and not constraints. So let's be clear. Paul, Paul was not pointing to the fact of his imprisonment by itself as a cause for rejoicing. He was instead rejoicing in how God was using his imprisonment for the advance of the gospel. And he was modeling for us a mature attitude toward the life of discipleship. He was pointing us to the higher priority of of Christian conviction over the lesser priorities of comfort and convenience. Beware Burger King Christianity. You know, that that brand of Christianity that insists on having it your way. The Jesus who died to be your Savior demands simultaneously to be your Lord and to occupy the throne of your life. When, When you can begin to see God at work, even in the most adverse of circumstances, 
the most difficult circumstances, the most undesirable circumstances, and on that basis to rejoice in them and to give thanks for them, it's one of the leading indicators that you are growing as a follower of Christ. Well, here's the second development. Paul writes in verse 14, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. See, Paul doesn't tell us, and and, and we can't know precisely how his imprisonment served to increase the confidence that his associates had in the Lord so that they spoke the word more boldly and fearlessly. But here's what I do know. Courage begets courage. We gain confidence, don't we, when when we read or we hear about the courage of godly men and women down through the ages and in our time who were willing to sacrifice and to endure suffering in order to be used greatly by God. I have no doubt that it was the confidence and courage with which Paul approached the uncertainties of what awaited him in Rome that inspired those who supported him and served alongside him to greater boldness in their own preaching. And Paul saw in that a sign that God was breaking down barriers of timidity and fear in the hearts and minds of godly men so that the proclamation of the gospel was, in fact, advancing and expanding exponentially through them. In verses 15 to 17, Paul points out that Christ is being preached not only by faithful friends, but also by rivals. And that, too, became a cause for rejoicing. And notice the nuance in these three verses. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. In these verses, Paul describes two groups of preachers. Let's take a look at them. He, he doesn't identify them by name, but he just labels them some and others. Notice in verse 15 that, that both groups preach Christ. That's, that's important to observe because while Paul criticizes the some group, his criticism isn't aimed at their doctrine. They are not, for example, preaching a different gospel, one that's no gospel at all, like those Paul condemned in his letter to the churches in Galatia. Nor are they like the false apostles that he censured in the church in Corinth. By contrast, these men are in fact preaching Christ. But he takes them to task for their motives and their, their way of thinking. The sums preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. They were competitive with Paul. They envied his prominence, his authority, his influence, his impact. And you know what? I have to confess that I've been like them. I've given in far too many times to the temptation to compare myself to others. And in many cases coming up short. Who's the better preacher or teacher? Who, whose church is growing faster? 
Whose church has the larger annual income? Who who has led more people to Christ in the past year? Who's baptized more new believers? Who has a larger salary? Who has a cooler building? Who gets invited to speak at gatherings of pastors and other leaders? And you might look at that and say, well, that's ridiculous. Are our pastors really that bad? Yes. At least I know I am. And it's so easy to fall into that satanic cesspool of pride that feeds the attitudes of competitiveness and envy and rivalry instead of a pure partnership in the gospel. Compared to the sums, the others preach Christ, not, not from envy and rivalry, but from goodwill. And, and then he switches the sequence and he points to the others first and the sums second. The others preach Christ out of love, he says. The sums preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not with a sincere heart. And just think about that. Can you imagine the, the difference in the fruit that each of these two groups produce through their ministries? Wow. The others know that Paul was put in his present circumstance for the purpose of defending the gospel. They're aware that that God's sovereign authority is at work in Paul, being where he is, interacting with the specific people that he is. And when you have that perspective, you can pray and preach with a clear and courageous heart. The sums think they can afflict Paul in his imprisonment. How would they afflict him? certainly not by physical harm, but by attempting to leverage his incarceration to promote themselves on the outside and to elicit anxiety, envy, and rivalry in Paul's own heart on the inside. The good news is that Paul's having none of it. So in verse 18 he writes, Well, what then? Only in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Paul was intent on the priorities of the the kingdom of God, not his own, and on the proclamation of Jesus Christ. He understood that he couldn't control what was happening on the outside. So he decided that as long as the gospel of Christ was being preached, not some other gospel and not some other Christ, He could relax and rejoice. Eugene Peterson captured the heart of verses 15 to 18 so well in his paraphrase known as the message, and he renders it this way. It's true that some here preach Christ because with me out of the way, they think they'll step right into the spotlight. But the others do it with the best heart in the world. One group is motivated by pure love, knowing that I'm here defending the message, wanting to help. The others, now that I'm out of the picture, are merely greedy, hoping to get something out of it for themselves. Their motives are bad. They see me as their competition, and so the worse it goes for me, the better they think for them. So, how am I to respond? I've decided that I really don't care about their motives, whether mixed, bad, or indifferent. Every time one of them opens his mouth, Christ is proclaimed, so I just cheer them on. It's great. You know, in a sense, uh, COVID-19 has us all under house arrest, doesn't it? Well, let me ask you, how might God use your particular circumstances during this unusual time 
to advance the gospel. You might be spending a good deal of time with a very small number of people. They're locked down too. Who might you influence for Christ during these days and weeks? How might God remove barriers that you thought were immovable so that the seeds of faith can be planted in their lives? You might not think of yourself as a preacher. Try changing the language to a proclaimer and see if it fits. Proclaim Jesus. When you don't know what else to proclaim, proclaim Jesus. When you don't know what else to say, say the name of Jesus. Tell them what Jesus has done for you. Tell them that Jesus loves them with an everlasting love and longs to have a relationship with them. Tell them that he's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Tell them that he knows their name and he's engraved it on the palm of his hand. Tell them that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Tell them that only he can open the way for them to enjoy a relationship with God. Tell them that he lived the life that they couldn't live. Tell them that he died their death, paying in full the debt they owed but could never repay. Tell them that he rose again from the dead as he promised by the power of God. Tell them that he will forgive their sin. Tell them that they can be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus. Tell them that he wants to give them the gift of eternal life. Tell them that he wants to come into them and live his life in them and through them. Tell them that he will never leave them or forsake them. Tell them that he's preparing a place for them that he's coming again soon to take them home to heaven, where they'll be with him, filled with joy forever and ever. Tell them about Jesus. Tell them that he's bread when they're hungry, that he's water when they're thirsty, that he's light when they're in darkness, that he'll be a bridge over troubled waters, that he will make a way where there is no way. Tell them that he'll bear their heavy load. Tell them. Even if they don't believe you, just tell them. Even if they don't receive you, tell them. Tell them that Jesus loves them. Tell them about Jesus. Proclaim his name and experience genuine joy, even in uncertain circumstances. I love you, LifePoint. See you soon. Have a great week.